Welcome to Foot Guns. It is me, Wasabi Wit Research, together with Hal and Cletus Gen X, uh, the individual formerly known as Boomer. And today we are really uh, thrilled to have with us the internet's most impersonated chicken, um, also known as Doomberg, Doomberg T, the prolific Substack writer. Um, Doomberg, what's going on? Thanks for joining us today. Hey, Wasabi, Hal, Cletus, great to be here. And um... You know, just another day in paradise uh, doing what we do, um, working on the next piece, which I hope to finish overnight and uh, happy to be a guest on your podcast. So when I say the most uh, impersonated chicken, you go by a green chicken avatar, which is, uh, as I understand, that's kind of like the branding that you've uh, selected for your persona. And it seems like every other day you're getting another, you know, chicken scammer impersonator. Like, have you tried to like track them down, like what kind of scam are they running? Like if you end up uh, following up with those people. Well, there's all kinds of scams on Twitter, as you know. And just today we had our latest attempt at getting verified denied by the Twitter algorithm, which was um, disappointing. We were hoping that the uh, the big feature of Doomberg and New York Magazine that we were talking about before we started recording um, might lend some credibility to our application to get a blue check mark. Um, I think most of them are... Um, identity theft type scams. Um, um, and um, it's kind of sad, you know, like that watching this Twitter, um, Elon Musk uh, fiasco really uh, unfold. Um, Twitter is such a wonderful platform. Uh, it truly is sort of the, the great town hall that has such enormous potential and that's so terribly managed um, that in many ways, Elon has a point. You know, we can't put a tweet out without um, instant replies from bots linking to, you know, scams and so this on this is cletus are you elon musk maxi uh no no we, we've been relatively critical of elon but we don't write about tesla very much because um it uh it just triggers us there's sort of settled opinions on that matter and there's not much that we can add uh, to the debate uh, but just we we've written about the twitter um uh acquisition because we have some pretty good experience in m a disputes and um delaware Chancery Court, and um, and our view is that you know for the normal human being, this is a slam dunk case for Twitter. But Elon is anything but a normal human being, and and watching it all unfold. But I only bring up um, Elon and the acquisition of Twitter in the context of uh, the question here, which is we've probably been um, imitated fifty times. I don't know how many different ways you can trade O's for zeros and um, add a letter or two to the end of our or a space or an underscore or a hyphen. Uh, we found pretty much all of them. The way the way they come to our attention is people um, send us a DM and then we just tweet it out and ask. Yeah, I'm just trying to and figure out, and, and is most anonymity do. important to you, uh, Doomberg? Because uh, I'm trying to sort of figure out whether we know each other in real life. I mean, I, I uh, ran a multi-strat uh, hedge fund. I've taken, you know, companies public in the in an energy space. And uh, you referenced, at least on a podcast, that you were coming out of uh, maybe a bulge bracket research investment bank or something like that. Is there any chance no, we haven't no. met at a conference? No. I, so um, well, we can talk about anonymity separately, but our background, which we've been pretty upfront about, is we are, come from the corporate side in the commodity sector. And uh, we're a small team with um, several decades of experience in energy slash commodities um, that came from the corporate side, and I'm a trained scientist. I've never worked on Wall Street, um, never worked um, at, at a hedge fund or or, or anything like that. I've spent several years in industry gaining direct experience, especially on the technology side. Uh, developed a bit of a, uh, a brand in the corporate world for um, the ability to bridge the gap between complicated science and um, distilling that complexity into a format that is easily sort of consumed by finance professionals as they decide whether... They should write a check to support um, certain technology developments or take a pass on certain companies that are technology plays. And um, I, I wrote an awful lot of internal white papers to, you know, boards and, and C-suite executives um, using that skill. And that was always a passion of mine. And then um, several years ago, we, we collectively left the corporate world and started our own consulting firm. And then COVID hit and we lost a lot of business, like all kinds of small businesses did. And and then we developed this um, this uh, line of business helping content creators run their businesses better, which was an interesting suggestion from a major hedge fund that you would you would certainly recognize. Um, 
uh, a hedge fund, a person who operates a hedge fund that um, we became friends with gave us the advice to do that. And then our, our clients uh, that we developed over time suggested that we should start our own. And so 18 months ago now, I guess, we started Doomberg. And uh, anonymity initially was um, a growth hack, <laughs> to put it um, in a certain way. Like a, a, we decided to go in anonymous and to create the Green Chicken moniker and to brand it under the Doomberg brand um, as a way to accelerate growth on social media. Um, because the content creation business, really the front end of your funnel is, is impressions and uh, you can't be remembered if you don't stand out. And it's very hard to create a durable brand, uh, with a person as front of house, if you don't have some pre-existing social media footprint. Um, and then once we built the brand and it started to grow, you know, spectacularly beyond our, our wildest imaginations, um, we have since observed that when anonymous accounts de-anonymize, um, the brand sort of collapses and there's the mystique is gone. And, um, and so we've just decided um, to keep the green chicken and Doomberg. Um, I'm the front of the house who you know, goes on podcasts and I'm the head writer, but we have other team members who participate. Um, editing in particular um, is done uh, by, by one of the partners in, in my consulting firm. Um, we've put our consulting firm on hold. Uh, we've to new clients, we, we, we've kept the existing ones that, that have been loyal to us through COVID, um, but we're turning away new business and focusing all of our time on Doomberg. And, and now that it's grown so much, we um, we just prefer to stay anonymous. It, I, and I've said this before on other podcasts, it's not like Substack doesn't know who we are or Stripe doesn't know who we are. And, you know, we're based in the United States and our bankers know, um, you know, that the Doomberg subscription revenue is coming from Doomberg. And um, many, many, many people on Wall Street know who we are. It's not like uh, some big trade secret, and we frankly yeah, don't care if we get like dots. The, we're just not going to acknowledge it's it. It's not yeah. like your Sifu or something like that. I, I mean, that that's the whole. Oh, we decided we decided to start this whole uh, Footguns thing, uh, you know, anonymous because we're friends with Liquidity. Which you know, maybe you should DM him and ask him how he got his uh, Twitter account. <laughs> check mark because i'm not sure how but i, I mean I, I wrote a i wrote an article uh in footguns called anonymity i i don't i think i think you can go on substack and like search for it in our thing to find it anyone listening that cares to go read it but um you know it, i i'm personally heavily involved in the crypto world right i'm on um multi-sigs that can move quite a bit of money around and um you know there's the whole thing around sifu and um a, a couple of different anonymous um people in the space like for instance we have someone at badger that is completely anonymous won't even uh get into a voice call with anyone only uh types so you know obviously they're proving their value like pretty pretty crazy thing to prove your value only through text um for, for me personally, uh, you know, writing foot guns has been a great way, you know, to express myself. So, it, you know, do you ha did you have a drive as a writer uh, before Doomberg? Like, or, or was it just, or did, you know, did, did you see writing as the thing you had to do to get uh, this information out there? No. So we, we laid this out um, in a piece early on that nobody's ever read, I'm sure. Um, we, we, when we first started, we used to write these monthly pieces called The Work of My Life, where we would sort of describe our strategy lay out our tactics and share quite openly, you know, our metrics around growth with our subscribers, um, mostly because we just wanted to document even for ourselves this journey. And um, as I described earlier, you know, um, even though I was a scientist and I was a, a successful researcher and I, I led, you know, global teams of researchers around the world um, and have a very good understanding, for example, of the molecular map of how the economy actually works, in reflecting upon, you know, my multi-decade corporate career, um, the real differentiator that was sort of the accelerant to my ascension in the, you know, up the corporate ladder was this ability to write and to distill complexity and to teach um, non-finance concepts to finance professionals in a language they could understand. And in a way, if, if you think about what Doomberg does, we do a lot of that, especially in the energy sector. Um, and so, um, I always sort of viewed coming up through college and grad school and, um, you know, when I was doing my, my PhD, that um, writing was sort of, a, and the arts, you know, the, the liberal arts were sort of this, unnecess this necessary nuisance that I had to check a box on to get down to the serious work of doing science. And it's, it's you know, ironic. It's, it's that, um, do you trade, that, Doomberg? Yeah. Do you actually, do you trade? Um, I, I used to trade, um, but we have discovered through our consulting work, you know, we, we, have wealthy family offices as clients and so on that um, 
we 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 can't so, do so better than what fam- I'm a wealthy but... family office. Let's hear your pitch. Let's hear your pitch. <laughs> no, um, we don't trade. We we invest alongside them. Um, so we help right. them. No, but I, I'm saying I, yeah. I personally am a wealthy family. I I literally am. <laughs> like I'm in Martinique right now trading crude oil futures. And yeah. so uh, um, I guess I guess the, I just, the, if we could speed this up a little bit, what's your spiciest take right now? I understand uh, that a lot of people having you on podcasts in order to uh, discuss the current energy situation around the world and all that other kind of stuff. So um, as interesting a guy as I'm sure you are, what is this? What have you found? People found the most spicy. I mean, I've seen you on a lot of podcasts. So what, talk to us. Uh, you have to define spicy for me. I think um, we, our, our, our whole insightful, um, uh, unusual, contrarian. Um, why do people, I mean, people pay. Yeah. When we first started, um, we, our views weren't considered sort of um, uh, consensus. And now they've become such, you know, um, the European energy crisis is something we've been writing about for the better part of a year, um, the famine and so on. Um, I, I, th- I think the, the, the reason people paid for Doomberg is because we can tackle a complex problem that um, seems intractable to those without expertise in the area. And then we explain it in a language that is accessible to people. So we don't, we're not actually in it for the spice. We're in it for the simplicity. So that, that's why maybe that's a disappointing answer to you. But uh, that's the service we try to offer um, uh, our subscribers and our readers. Um, and we do the same thing for our clients, which is like, hey, we have this investment. Uh, we've been pitched this, um, this great gr- groundbreaking technology. Uh, have a look at this and tell us if it's bullshit or not. And they know. Uh, that they're going to get uh, both a thorough and well-researched answer, but one they can understand, and it's going to be the truth. Like we're not uh, placating to them. And one of the things that we have found with our client base, it's not a business that we've um, we've put a lot of effort to grow since the, the sort of growth of Doomberg. But um, when you reach a certain level of wealth, almost nobody tells you the truth. Um, and um, you sort of, um, uh, you, you, um, you risk uh, swimming in a pool of your own bullshit, right? <laughs> in the sense that... Um, uh, everybody around you is around you because you have a lot of money and they would like some of it. Um, and so um, their their primary concern is to make sure that um, they don't say anything to you that risks their access to your money. And uh, we never operated that way with our clients. Uh, we always told them the truth. When they were very excited for a deal and we thought it was BS, we told them it was BS and why. And sometimes they went through with the deal and it didn't work. And that um, you know can jeopardize the relationship because if you're used to being told um, everything that, that you want to hear, then when somebody tells you something different, it, it can be fracturing. And, and we're happy to walk away from such relationships. But no, as a general rule, um, we've always prided ourselves on distilling complexity, telling the truth, being upfront, um, and, and working from that, uh, from that basis. So. so I think one of the, the ideas that is, I don't know, as a crypto podcast, we definitely should go into, and we've kind of put together a few outlines of this, but like you had a series of pieces on crypto and just the overall like mental model that you have of imagine two balloons, you have like the fiat world and the crypto world and, you know, fiat is going into the crypto world, but it's very, I think you've sort of questioned how kind of intrinsic value is created within that crypto world that would feed value back out into the fiat world. I don't know if that's, you would characterize that as like a, an accurate um, view of this model, but like, can you kind of frame that up for us and how you think about the, the yeah. two uh, the two worlds intersection or lack thereof. So there's one critical phrase that's missing from your description of the sort of two balloons model, as you call it, which is it's difficult, difficult for us to see in the crypto world how more fiat is being created. And unless and until um, here in the US, for example, um, the crypto is accepted as payment for goods and services directly without having to convert back into fiat. Um, it's difficult for us to see how you could inherently create more fiat. Um, and then when you correct for the, um, the sort of the energy costs and the grift costs and the scam costs, that the amount of fiat um, supporting the valuations, which are marked in fiat, um, is decidedly less than what those valuations would indicate. Um, and so that's the way, you know, we've been in and around crypto for a while. Again, we're the first to admit how little we know about, about the space. Uh, but we did it once in a piece where we we introduced that model of thinking, you know, um, back in 2017, we were equity investors in a company 
that um, had involvement in the crypto space, which was our introduction to it. And it, that company got caught up in the in the wave of crypto and, you know, had all these valuation marks that were sort of surreal to us based on our knowledge of what the, the company was actually doing. And then it all came down, crashing down to zero. Um, because and, and luckily, we never allowed ourselves to mark um, that equity um, at, at, um, at what you might dream that it could be worth. Um, and, um, and so from that experience, what sort of, you know, um, shapes you, um, we've always just sort of pondered, like, um, what is something worth if your framework is fiat? Again, if, you're if, you, if you think fiat is dead money and it's a Ponzi scheme and the world will eventually be, um, you know, um, transacting in Bitcoin and the amount of Bitcoin you own will define your wealth, then that's fine. And you can believe that. And it might even be true. Um, but in our view, um, today in the fiat world, um, the mark, like, and, and if that is your view, there's no need for you to mark the price of Bitcoin in US dollars, for example. <laughs> One Bitcoin is one Bitcoin, as Michael, Michael Saylor famously says um, so often. Um, and so um, that's sort of the framework that's missing from people when they get annoyed when we write such things is that um, if you're going to measure the value of your cryptocurrency in fiat, um, then your ability to withdraw fiat from that universe matters to you or it should matter to you. Um, so that's the, that's the yeah. No, that's a that's a really important statement. That's actually the the thing we've been trying to get across to our li listeners the whole time. Because you know, there's the bankless crowd that's out out there saying get as much Ethereum as you can get, and you know, don't look back. And Michael Saylor saying get as much Bitcoin as you can get, and don't look back. And we're just trying to say that if you want to actually realize the profit, well, we live in a fiat world, so you got to turn it back into fiat at some point, and. Might as well do it while the price is up when, instead of when it's down. Yeah. And um, and our view is um, if everybody tried to do that all at once, you'd find that there's far less fiat than the market um, value. And, it, and look, and that's true in all kinds of markets, but crypto is different because it, to many, they're overtly trying to displace um, the fiat system. And so you have to expect a counterpunch from the, the, um, the evil... Um, leaders that we have um, and we're the first to admit that there's many 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 flaws with the fiat system and that's why we um we have a healthy amount of gold and so on like we're not um pro state um think everything is great and the u.s dollar is fantastic and the treasury should be allowed to see all of our transactions and heaven forbid if we get a central bank digital currency which we believe would be a quick path to the end of freedom um you know that we're just observing um analytically that I can't go buy a loaf of bread at my grocery store with Bitcoin yet. And so I might think I have a million dollars worth of Bitcoin, but if I can't take out that million dollars, um, then do, what do I really have? Um, and so I have Bitcoin and that's fine. Oh, hey, so I have, I, and, I have and, a question because you, know, you brought it up. And um, uh, I feel like no one really talks about this, that, you know, because you said central bank digital currency. But in my mind, you know, being heavily involved in the tech side of crypto, I just don't understand how you could implement a central bank digital currency unless you built it on top of Ethereum, for instance, because how would you, I mean, other than, you know, like what you like call PayPal and you call, you know, whoever Amazon and you say, Hey, we need a bunch of AWS servers that are going to be providing us, you know, compute power for this digital currency. Like, do you think it would actually be technologically possible to implement I, like in a reasonable I, amount of time? I, I, I... I don't think actually that they're going to make a cryptocurrency. <laughs> they're just going to have massively um, a massive surveillance state um, popped up on top of a digital currency, not a cryptocurrency. Um, and so like there's not. Going yeah, to but be... even that even that digital currency, right, like it would need some form of implementation of control. Right. So you'd have to have you'd have to have a database somewhere. So so I guess what I'm just saying is like, you know, if you're going to service a population of 330 million people with a digital currency, like the, you know, the current dollar has a digital form that came sure. into existence, you know, in a, in a more um, natural way through, through all these private services showing up. I just, I just can't see, I mean, unless the government, I guess, went and hired a bunch of private services to implement it. Maybe that's maybe what they're going to do. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. your, your social security number will get you a digital account at the fed. And then the Fed will decide um, how much, quote, money goes into that account. And um, once that's established, uh, and they, our prediction is as follows. Um, the next round of crises that, um, that uh, provoke a stimulus, need for a stimulus, 
uh, it'll come as follows. You could get a $5,000 check in the normal way, or you could sign up for your uh, FedCoin um, at the Handy Fed website, and we'll give you $10,000 of, of FedCoin. And FedCoin will be accepted for payment. You'll get a credit card, and um, more and more people will sign up. It'll be normalized, and then eventually you'll have to have FedCoin. Um, and then that'll be it. There'll be real no need for banks in that scenario. Um, you will be um, all of your sort of earnings will go into FedCoin and be and be highly visible to the IRS for taxation. And uh, when the government gives you money, they can put the, or even the money that you earn, they'll put limits on what you can spend. So, for example, um, maybe they might decide that you're only allowed to buy um, one box of ammunition a month. Um, and then eventually you won't be allowed to buy am ammunition. Um, it's just going to be a giant centralized bank. It's not going to be anything crypto. Um, the whole point of it is to get complete insight into how every American and frankly, every citizen in the world eventually okay. uh, transacts. Uh, so this is a pretty, so you believe the government is the United States government. You're, you're a United States citizen? Mm -hmm. Yes, uh -huh. sir. So you're a citizen and you believe that quote unquote, the United States government, do you believe political appointees from this administration political appointees from a previous administration? Do you believe career officials? Do you believe, I mean, the government is a very sort of sure. weird thing to sort of pin it on. So uh, who is going to be the person who goes into a conference room meeting? And I don't know if you've ever worked in high level White House administrations or whatever, but uh, maybe you have uh, and been witness to a conversation like that. But who is going to go into a conference room and say, you know, uh, we're the leader of the free world. The dollar is the reserve currency. And our number one goal as a government, again, you're going to have to specify political appointee, career government official, whatever it is. They're going to go into a conference room someday on like a Tuesday and be like, we're kicking ass. We basically own the world as the United States. And the next stop is surveilling all of our citizens' purchases. Yeah. So there's a really great piece by Ben Hunt um, called In Praise of Bitcoin, which I would invite the listeners to go and find. If you just Google In Praise of Bitcoin, Ben Hunt, um, he has a great analogy for the U.S. Treasury. Um, this is not a controversial. Well, I don't think it's a controversial belief. Um, he, he, he describes... Um, the U.S. Treasury is the eye of Soren. They want to see every single dollar transaction in the world. And they want the world, to, you know, the, the, the U.S. dollar to be um, the global currency. Um, and, and so the eye of Soren uh, analogy, which is so brilliant that he uses in this really great paper, um, uh, is intended to project power. Like when you control the currency, you control the power. So, yes, I do believe I, I believe it's bipartisan. Um, I think there's a uniparty system in the U.S. that is deeply corrupt. Um, many of the sort of foundational beliefs of uh, what we would All call right. the Bitcoin maximalists are. Wait, 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 just a second here. Just a second yeah. here. Like, I mean, there's a, you may, like, I need to understand. Okay. First of all, is we know that there's two distinct political parties, right? Like, I, I need you to tell me in what interest, you know, on what day, which government official is going to decide that, that we need to turn the United States into surveillance state. And I if we're, so, we're, if we're that, but if you, then, look, if you look at the history of how these regulations have come up, just with the increase, you know, the $10,000 limits, the reporting yeah, limits, $600. Like, yeah, now, if you yeah. graph that over time, I mean, I don't think anyone would dispute that historically there's a trend towards greater and greater financial surveillance. Yeah. I mean, I, it I used to be that. Well, I just I mean, that. And, and how so? What way? Yeah. So I dispute that. I dispute. I dispute this entire. It's just. It's such an easy thing to say to appeal to disaffected uh, people who don't earn a whole lot of money, unlike me. Uh, that the government is sort of out to get them. Then you sort of suck them in through that funnel. I mean, we just saw four years of that, and that only you are speaking the truth and all this kind of stuff and. It's a very seductive thing to believe that there are people in the government who are trying to out to get you. And I don't think I, they're out to get you. They're out to surveil the government you. in the highest levels. And I have never seen any evidence of what you're talking about. Well, I, I mean, the, I mean I, I, the, the, the surveillance is evident, I think, um, as far as we have a self-reporting taxation system. True or false in the United States. Yeah, that is true. 
And sure. so, so, yeah, well, but, but, so, but well, if you well, report well, wouldn't wrong, that be motivation to then, yeah, wouldn't that be motivation? That's an artifact of the, of the lobbies and Intuit and keeping it self-reporting so no, that wait, there's wait, wait, a tax wait, wait. prep industry. The thing about the CBDC that I, like Doomberg, you mentioned is like the bank, like it would destroy banks and banks to me are not an unpowerful interest in the sure. United States. So I just don't see, like, I could see a, uh, where it's like yeah, especially commercial a banks. quote unquote independent panel consisting of Citibank, JP Morgan, blah, blah, blah. All the big banks create a consortium to create, you know, the, the fed coin and they're these independent, there's a fig leaf or something like that. Like, it, you know, historically, I think that's the direction it, to me, it would be more likely to go in the U S but, um, yeah, so so just to just to be clear, one of the least covered stories about crypto I've seen all year is that JP Morgan is now using blockchain technology in the repo market to the tune of I don't know however many billions of dollars instead of providing collateral. I don't really think they're that hostile to blockchain. I just I need you to identify by name because I hear this shit all the time. No offense, Doomberg, but I hear this shit all the time about the big bad government trying to come and get you. And one of the things I've been able to bring here at Foot Guns is to say when all Twitter goes crazy, that Congress is out to get you. I mean, the easiest way to sell whatever it is you're selling is to convince people that someone is out to get them. And I, we have a self-reporting tax system in the United States, and that has not changed in the most recent history. So you're saying at a future moment that some government official, either elected or unofficial, I'd like you to just identify. I, look, I mean, I, this is not a controversial statement. I, I have no idea why you think this is controversial. I'd like, just let's like be... you identify when that's going okay. to happen. Okay. What, what just happened right now? Be... The government is coercing Visa and MasterCard and the payment processors to put a special code towards um, what they call suspicious gun sales. Like, I, you, what world are you living that. in where you think this is not going on? Like, seriously, yeah. like what kind of no, bullshit no, are you smoking? I, the, world I live, the world I live in is the one that is a self-reporting taxation system. And when you say, quote unquote, the government is trying to. I said the U.S. Treasury. The Don't misquote official. me. The right, U.S. Treasury <laughs> Department has bankrupt, uh -huh. uh, bank secrecy laws and anti-money laundering and know your customer and their desire is to see every transaction in the world. This is not a controversial statement. Like uh, you've been around government people. So you think that there's not like one person at the center of this is uncompelling to me, to be honest with you. Like the trend is very clear. Okay, let's let's move on. Let's move on. I get, I get, I, for me, for me, I, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, before, before we move on, I mean, for me, I just like think it's just because I'm a numbers person. It's just like, I feel like the point that, uh, you know, Cletus is trying to make and because I, I mean, I'm I'm on, uh, you know, personally, I think that cryptocurrency, um, especially like Bitcoin, you know, it's really nice because you can move money around on your own without having to have a third party. But every transaction, you know, as soon as your wallet has been doxxed, um, yep. everything about that history is trackable. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's a, a risk and it's something that like you need to be careful about. So for me, it would just be like, what do you think the actual probability of a C uh, CBDC like coming into existence in the next 10 years is? And then, yeah, we can we can move on because I think we no, covered this one well enough. It's probably 100%. Um, look, I mean, here's some like specific examples, some tangible examples of the types of things um, that you think aren't going to be an issue that um, we're genuinely worried about. And this is not some um, effort to scare people into subscribing to our Substack um, because we don't really write about crypto or this issue very often. Um, uh, payment processors are a key choke point for political activists. And uh, you can Google around and see how um, uh, during the, um, the, the COVID lockdowns, uh, there were lots of sort of controversial takes on um, vaccines and what this disinformation and how effective they were and whether certain treatments were good or certain treatments weren't. Um, there's a clear track record of uh, White House officials reaching out to social media companies. Um, there's a clear track record of uh, politically active people aligned to the government, but not necessarily in the government, um, putting pressure on payment processors to um, shut down um, certain business activities that they find offensive. Um, it, the, the, the trend of the convergence of using um, well, look what happened in, in Canada. Again, it doesn't need to be um, just an American. This is a global phenomenon. 
um, Trudeau retroactively decided that participating and supporting um, the so-called Freedom Convoy um, protest movement um, was a, a de facto a digital crime and um, bank accounts were frozen, crypto wallets were frozen, um, and um, people have been put in jail. That when, and, and as we've written in our piece, you know, when this happens in uh, Russia or China, the West is uh, uh, universal in its condemnation. But when it happens here, the first thing we do is decide which team um, the current political leaders are on, which is why you asked me sort of, is it a Democrat or a Republican? I think it, it doesn't matter. Um, uh, before we decide whether this is okay and acceptable because it probably won't happen to me because this, this is my team doing it to somebody else. Um, it, it's, a very, it's a very short walk from that to the other team coming in power and extracting retribution. Um, and so we've been pretty consistent on this point. I don't think it's controversial. I think the trend of surveillance is unidirectional. It's getting worse. Um, the government is drip, drip, dripping, boiling frogs, as was as mentioned earlier. And uh, there will come a day where, and by the way, when it happens, we will sign up for it because we are, um, we have nothing to hide in our transactions. Um, it's just unfortunate because then the government will be able to say, hey, uh, are you sure you want to donate to that particular um, political issue, much like they're doing, you know, with tornado cash. Just, and so, just, yeah. just to be clear, I think you make a great point. You make a great point, Deanberg. And I think that is the thing that scares me. And, and I'm actually sort of, uh, uh, I see I'm more green shoots, I guess you're sort of, yeah, I guess that's why your name's Doomsburg and mine's not, but <laughs> I see more, more green shoots in terms of like, so I think you make an excellent point in terms of the way the dangers of a CDC. I'm, I'm, I mean, that's absolutely happening in say China, which is an authoritarian regime where they wanted, they want a digital currency so they can implement the ultimate surveillance state. So I, I totally, I totally agree with you. The, 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 the friction comes when obviously we want to ban certain transactions like child trafficking. Uh, sure. you can agree with that. And, uh, so, you know, where does who 100%. draws the line, who's the arbiter and all that other kind of stuff, Correct. which is kind of why we have a democracy and we elect various people at various times. So, uh, but I the do, technologies I do, I, um, being, I yeah. just wanted to Go clarify, ahead. I 100% agree that the, the scariest thing that I can envision is the implementation of a U.S. digital currency that's tracked like you're talking about. So I, I, I see that and, as a terrible thing. Just to be clear. And, yeah, I and I agree with you on that. And let's be clear, the, the companies developing the technology that China is using <laughs> are the very same ones um, that exist over here. Like the, these technology companies are fighting over themselves to sell surveillance technologies, um, face recognition, you know, um, mapping your movements on your cell phone, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all of this is sort of a, a mix of Western and, and Chinese homegrown technology companies, and um, they're all existing over here. Like, uh, and in fact, um, I suspect that one of the ways in which uh, the government will convince people that this is a good thing to do is that they will say they're taking it out of the hands of unaccountable corporations who are already tracking us like you can't believe, right? Um, and so look, I mean, I, I live a clean life. Um, my, my, I raise my children. I, uh, you know, I, I go to work. I, I write these articles. Uh, we consult. Um, we we properly report all of our income to the IRS. We have accountants, we have lawyers, we have bankers, we're in the system. And when it comes, we will um, be forced to join it because we're not going to be martyrs um, yeah. uh, against Denver. central bank so currency. This is know. Cletus again. No, I totally agree with you. Yep. Uh, so one thing you just mentioned is one of my sort of pet peeves. This is lack of accountability of corporations. And a lot of people point to quote unquote shareholders as being the control mechanism. But we know in all reality that you know, like Walmart is like a small government, right? I mean, you can't, oh, yeah. there's no activist shareholders coming in there. And so I guess one of the things, again, approaches from the green shoot side, the optimistic side, one of the things I've been amazed with with crypto is the pro-democracy forces surrounding decentralized autonomous organizations. Now, there's been a lot of bad actors that are fake DAOs that don't, don't allow for that, but it does seem to represent true voting. Do you see... DAOs is a way to uh, expand sort of the way I do the, the, to expand democracy. Yeah, well, I mean, expand um, freedom of choice, which is a different, different descriptor than democracy. Back to your point about 
corporate boards and stuff. Uh, broadly, I would agree with you, and I, I've said this on a different podcast, where my personal experience with boards, which is probably similar to your personal experience with government, um, has been vastly disappointing. Um, these boards are um, underwhelming, uninterested, and uh, they are certainly not, um, usually at least, uh, mechanisms through which uh, shareholder dissatisfaction can be effectively conveyed. Um, the one exception that did surprise us um, was the um, the winning of the board seats at ExxonMobil by this uh, ESG, very small ESG fund that owned almost no shares. Um, that was an interesting development um, that sort of questions the foundation of our hypothesis. So, um, but back to your point about, um, I always forget the acronym, I get it wrong. Oh, about, DAOs, uh, DAOs, yeah. Um, DAOs? The DAOs, yeah, yeah. Um, this is sort of just a an updated version of the same phenomenon with some of the frictions of actually doing it taken out. And so to that extent, I think they are a positive development. And what do I mean by that? It's very, very hard for the traditional shareholder to vote a proxy um, in the sense that it requires them to do things that they just don't know how to do. And so uh, we saw this with Trump's... Um, SPAC, DWAC, which is a truth social trying to go public, and they need an extension uh, uh, of the SPAC, and they just literally couldn't round up the retail shareholders um, uh, to cast their votes, and so they didn't get a quorum, and so they had to punt on it, and there's danger that um, they will be forced to give the money back in trust, and the deal dissolves. Um, my, my counter to it, though, is as follows. Like, to participate in a DAO, requires a certain level of technical competence to just be in the game. And I wonder whether this isn't just self-selection of technically competent people. And then since everybody who's participating in a DAO is competent enough to understand what a crypto wallet is and what a key is and uh, the difference between cold and hot wallets and the difference between proof of stake and the proof, proof of work and what smart contracts are, like there is a sort of a, a danger that by participating in, in DAOs, that you are um, getting a distorted view of what average is and therefore a potentially distorted view of what the future might be for the whole. Um, and so there's sort of a, a, an, an admirable techno competence in the crypto community that is real, that we acknowledge, um, that we think is, is, is far above what the average citizen uh, in the Western world uh, would have time or, or, or the ability to do. I don't know so if that makes sense. I want to get to our, our section on energy, but I have like one final question for you on crypto to kind of like hopefully sum up what we've been discussing and that's just like number one like if you put on your hat of you know technology advisor to industry is there an area or areas of blockchain that you see as particularly promising just from like a tech point of view and second secondly like going back to this discussion about like bitcoin or crypto as like this sort of privacy or freedom technology that could uh, be sort of like a release valve to government pressure. Like, are you, do you buy that narrative? Like, or, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of more skeptical or like sympathetic to the idea that like, as long as the on-ramps, the coin bases and everything are locked down, like, you know, you could send, you could send me a Bitcoin or whatever, yeah, but else. if I can't offboard it, it's worthless to me. So I'm, I'm pretty bearish on the take, but, but curious uh, to hear your thoughts on like crypto as freedom technology. Yeah. So again, this actually forms the foundation of our beliefs and circles back to the the vigorous discussion that we just had, which, by the way, I'm always happy to engage in. Um, the technologies that are most interesting, in our view, happen to be the ones that are most offensive to the powers that be. Um, in other words, the technologies that I think are the most interesting and perhaps uh, in the highest demand eventually uh, will be the technologies that allow for anonymization of financial transactions. So, which is why we wrote a piece um, bemoaning uh, and criticizing the U.S. Treasury's move against Tornado Cash, uh, which is an evolved opinion uh, on our part. Um, I think that the service provided by Tornado Cash, which is to create anonymity, um, um, has legitimate uses, like privacy is not bad. Privacy is a fundamental human right. And to the extent that privacy is being eroded uh, by the eye of Soren, by the U.S. Treasury, um, that that's a bad thing. Um, it's not necessarily a bad thing for us, quote unquote, again, because we, we believe that we live relatively clean lives and, and color within the lines and all of that. But at the same time, once those powers are institutionalized, it doesn't take too much of a bad actor to infiltrate the system to abuse them. 
Um, and so the technologies that are most interesting to us are the exact ones that the government will pursue the hardest to shut down. And so um, we are in aggregate bearish on crypto as freedom because um, we don't think that the ability to counterpunch <laughs> by the government is properly um, internalized when assessing such technologies. Okay. So this would be like, imagine there is a new ZK snark enabled privacy coin that, you know, allowed users complete anonymity within their ecosystem. I guess there's still going to be a choke point back to like, if you would send that back to an yeah. Ethereum address, which is, can be de-anonymized and traced back. And then that goes to a Coinbase. So, you know, you still, I, I still don't fundamentally see how like you solve that chain because if anywhere in that chain is, uh, is doxxed or forced to have compliance or whatever, like it's still, it's still there. So I don't know, it's, it's, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a decades long, uh, game of cat and mouse, I think. And I, and I think that the ambition is laudable. Um, again, we used to only transact in cash, right? As a society, there was, there was no means to see what people were doing. I barely use cash anymore. Um, why? Um, I'm will I've made the decision that, um, I'm willing to sacrifice my privacy for convenience. Um, when I go to the grocery store, I don't feed hundred dollar bills into the little cash receptor. When I buy a case of beer or a bottle of rum or a carton of eggs or a loaf of bread, I put my credit card in. Um, and when yeah. I go uh, me, buy, buy a case of beer, to, uh, sky bonus points on Delta. <laughs> so, well, I have, Frank, I have the same thing. And I, you know, for many years when I was in the corporate world, I was a diamond just based on my spending habits. Um, and then they took that away and you had to have, have, have a certain minimum amount of flights to qualify for diamond. Um, but yeah, yeah same like thing here. Crypto airdrops were so successful for the same reason. Yeah. And that's why I think when they roll out the central bank digital currency, it's going to come with that little sweetener. It'll be voluntary at first. Um, yeah, and it'll it, probably have a dog on the face of it, my guess. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> I think that one has been sullied by the, uh, the, the dump aspect of the pump, but uh, they'll find some friendly face to put on it, and it'll be your, your patriotic duty to do it, and uh, most people will do it, and um, the holdouts will be vilified, and um, eventually so, it'll be mandated. So if I can steal Wasabi's thunder a little bit, we're going to pivot to talk a little bit about energy, which is something both you and I know quite a bit about. We're in the market trading energy futures, like I mentioned, that took a company public. And I see the current status, and I read some of your, uh, I became a page subscriber, by the way. Of Thank you. And uh, I- uh, Wait, just now while we were uh, talking? Read some of your articles and- yeah, you're right. Which is not yeah. I convinced not, I convinced him on the I that feared was, him into was, it on uh, the digital currency stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, I I did I signed up last night just to be fair. So, but, I'm, but I'm the, just giving you. But in reading your uh, analysis of the European quote unquote energy crisis, because it it really does feel like there's a tug and there's a push and pull between. And I think these governments at some level look like they're out of step with the reality of the situation. On the other hand, they don't want to create a panic, right? Um, so they need to maintain a, a lower profile. It just, I guess, if you think of yourself macro-wise, and I don't know how old you are, but I lived through, I was a financial participant. There's a very big difference in the way people think if you were a true financial participant, i.e. a principal investor through 2008, 2009, or if you're just passive. And I was a principal private equity investor in 2008, 2009. And one of the things we kept hearing about, all these hedge fund guys were like, Nothing's been fixed. We're just headed for another 0809. I mean, the Barnes and Noble bookshelf went from a glut of flipping real estate to why the next bubble is about to burst. You know, in other words, short the bubble and bubble books. But uh, uh, this idea that Europe is going to drag down the world has 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 you know it kept a lot of people out of the market in U.S. equities in 2010. The Greek debt crisis, which sure, we went long, yeah. We, we yeah we went long because we did the you know we read the article about how the Greek debt entire Greek debt is smaller than Volkswagen's market cap. I was like, how do you bring down a system? And there's been this sort of um, this I guess attempt to feel sort of deliberate. It may not be, and uh, to to delegitimize the EU European Monetary Union and or 
their system of government, which is also in direct alignment with Vladimir Putin. Uh, and so I guess I, this is now my second time in my career where I've heard Europe is going to drag down the global economy. Should I believe it this time or should, like in 2010, I get long? So just as background, in the financial crisis, I was um, a rising executive at a, at a company that uh, nearly went bankrupt. Um, and so I lived through that crisis on the sort of economy side of it, not the financial side of it. Um, and I got a very good understanding of the interface between the financial markets and the real economy through that experience, which for sure um, shaped my worldview, uh, especially on energy, by the way. Um, and so our, our writings on energy come from the industry side with a decent understanding of finance, um, but, but follow more the physics um, uh, than, the, than the financial markets. And, the, and I would say that um, we have a very good understanding of um, you know, the inability to print molecules, but the, the response mechanisms of the EU to stave off yet another existential crisis um, is difficult to imagine. Um, but at the same time, uh, not not a bet that um, that we would make. Um, it's it's called you know it's probably not the widowmaker trade. I think the widowmaker trade is betting on the um, collapse of the Japanese yen, um, which is another example of how just just how long um, relatively correct beliefs can lose you money. Um, and so this is another reason why we don't um, talk about sort of trading um, aspects. We're always happy to point out who will make more money as a company, but how their stock reacts or how you know, underlying commodity reacts um, based on who's involved in the market and how prices are set is very, very difficult to predict. Um, so back to your original question then, in that context, um, how serious a crisis is this for Europe and, and, um, and what are their responses? The ranges of possible outcomes include the final fragmentation of the EU project, which some people believe uh, will likely occur. And on the other side is people who believe that they will get through the crisis. Um, Turning down the thermostats from 22 Celsius to 18 Celsius is not too big a sacrifice, and most people will do it, et cetera, and that um, the EU will come out of this winter um, more unified than they went into it. And that, to be frank with you, that is our hope. Um, we, would, we would prefer that to be the outcome. Um, it's, a, it's a race against the clock right now. Can Europe diversify away from Russia faster than... Um, the speed with which it will go on tilt. Um, because there's no question in the medium term and in the long term, um, Vladimir Putin's uh, invasion of Ukraine is a catastrophic blunder uh, in our view. Um, he has a lot of leverage right now and he's going for broke. And um, by cutting off the gas supplies through Nord Stream 1, he is calling Europe's bluff that they can get through the winter. But if they do get through the winter and let's pray it's a mild one, for example, like uh, literally it's up to the gods now because the weather patterns in Europe this winter are going to drive a lot of the challenges. Um, uh, and so we shall see. Um, uh, we certainly hope um, uh, that Europe does. Uh, and, and you're, you know, that the standard sort of measurements of crisis are the sort of bond spreads between Italian and German 10 years or pick your favorite uh, peripheral um, um, sovereign debt. Um, but like you say, we've been here before. I'm old enough to remember when that spread was totally blown out and, um, Draghi uh, opened up a press conference and said, uh, we're going to do whatever it takes and you damn well better be sure it's going to be enough. And just those it words were enough. Extremely one, long you know. Portuguese sovereign debt at the time. And you're right about <laughs> Japan. Uh, yeah, it was a great, it wound up being the second best trade. The, the best trade of my life was I accidentally thought I was going long the Japanese yen uh, and shorting <laughs> Japanese yen and, and then it? stayed into it for a year and a half at uh, five times leverage. I think, though, that, you, you know, that that's a great point you make about Japan. And, and one of the one of the ways we outperformed our peers was we actually bet on Japan. And there's an old saying, you're no bidding global macro until you've lost money shorting Japanese bonds. Never made that mistake. <laughs> so uh, I definitely yeah, sort yeah. of agree with that. And I think that's a good, you know, I think that's a really, I want to compliment you on the way you address the European question because, um some vibes I guess I pick up from people who are not you are almost kind of a weird, let's hope Europe fails thing. And I, I like the way you preface that. Like we want this to work out, but there's a substantial 
even more than tail risk, there's a substantial risk that it won't work out. But we want this to work out. And I feel like sometimes I, yeah, I hear that, people who make the, the bear case and it almost feels so, like they're rooting against Europe. And I'm like, why? So we, this is a great point, And thank you for saying it, because we've been roped into that crowd uh, by some. Uh, but the, no matter how many times we say it, and I'll say it again here, um, nothing would make us happier than to come back on your podcast a year from now and say, you know what? We were alarmists uh, on the European question, and everything had turned out to be just fine. What a small price to pay. We have hundreds of friends. I, I used to manage large teams in Europe. I, I, have, um, I can't count the number of, of passport stamps I have on my many um, eight-hour travel trips over the pond to go to Europe um, to do business. Um, we, we would, in fact, when we write about the failure of the design of the sanctions policy, it's in an, an attempt to point out a more effective path um, to end the war quicker. Um, we're anti-war, we're pro-peace, we're pro-prosperity, we're pro-human, even the Europeans. <laughs> like we, we would much rather be proven wrong than to have uh, vast suffering um, and, and, and starvation uh, break out across uh, the, the developed world. Because by the way, that will leak to us. Like if there's no surviving this, there's no like, there, well, surviving is the wrong word. There's no way that a true calamity in Europe in the winter of 2022, 2023 doesn't affect many people that I know and love. And so why would I want that? Yeah, just to no, be proven I, right? I just want to, you know, so. I got a, I've got yeah. big open positions on crude. I got to jump, hop off the rest of the podcast will be Helen Wasabi, but uh, just want to yeah. say how much I enjoyed uh, talking to you. Didn't mean to get too cantankerous nah, about my fine. question about the government, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, I do compliment you on the way you say that because I do feel like there's some folks who just, I don't know, I feel like it's kind of this weird, sick thing where they well, want Well, this is the Twitter wars, them. you know, the toxicity of Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let's, um, I, I wonder if you could kind of sketch out, like, I guess a best case scenario. So it would be like mild winter, LNG exports to Europe up, substituting oil and coal. They're burning wood if they need to. But that's kind of like, a better case scenario and then a worst case is you know there's just not they're not able to get enough molecules that they need to uh to you know not have to shut down most of their industry like can you give us kind of like a base case and a worst case sure sure i think the worst case is worse than you defined it um um the um the worst case is well let's go to the best case first because we'll start optimistic um, the best case is peace breaks out and uh, maybe, you know, let's just like get really crazy and imagine that um, Putin is overthrown and a Western friendly leader is installed and uh, compromise is found in Ukraine and um, molecules start to flow both in Nord Stream 1 and in Nord Stream 2. Um, the crisis is averted. Um, Russia joins NATO and, um, you know, the, the Western world and the new sort of emerging uh, China-Russia um, uh, adversaries suddenly come to the table and um, the human endeavor is inspired to do uh, Disney world to lift everybody out of poverty on the planet that we can. That's the best. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah exactly. Um, by the way, that's what should have happened. Like, I, I don't know why it is that we always have to have somebody to fight. Um, that's the best case scenario. Um, the worst case scenario is um, tactical nuclear weapons are deployed in the battlefield because uh, the Ukrainian military is making advances and, Putin feels back into a corner, and then um, the nuclear powers in Western Europe respond, and we have uh, a real calamity. You know, it goes from a a proxy war to a hot kinetic war with nuclear weapons. I I, th I don't think anybody can cross that off the board of possibilities right now. Like, I don't think the worst case is Europe doesn't get enough energy. Now, if we're going to limit your question to what's the worst case for Europe vis-a-vis -vis energy, um, a really cold winter, and Russia not only keeps Nord Stream 1 shut off, but shuts off the natural gas flowing through Ukraine on the over-the-land pipelines, or a saboteur blows them up, um, etc. Um, a really cold winter uh, with no natural gas, and uh, maybe a cyber attack happens on a few critical um, LNG export facilities along the U.S. Gulf Coast. And um, next thing you know, it's 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 a crisis uh, in Europe that the population is ill prepared for because uh, as as uh, somebody mentioned earlier, um, you know they're trying to keep everything on the down low and not ensue in, in panic, which is I guess admirable. But at the same time, 
um, if the population is not prepared for what's coming, then uh, when it does arrive, um, it makes the consequences of its arrival um, all the worse. But our best case scenario is um, global peace and utopia. Our worst case scenario is tactical nuclear war. Um, and then um, so everything in between. All right. Well, on that cheery note, maybe we can pivot to uh, to U.S. energy. So, like, <laughs> this is the this is the thing that really kind of resonates with me in your writing is your a lot of your stuff around nuclear energy and just how when you kind of look at it, it seems like the no brainer solution if you want to move towards like a no carbon or you know lower carbon energy system for the U.S. and the world. And there have just been these blockers um you know you'll hear it criticized for it costs too much but you know is this because it's been overregulated um and just because of these unfounded fears like is it is it at base kind of just like a social and marketing and branding issue that that is holding nuclear back or is it do are are these challenges that are holding it back kind of like really grounded in physics or or it really needs to be overbuilt these standards no it's it, it, it... It's all politics. So uh, we've often said, I think we stole this originally from Josh Wolf. I don't know who he stole it from, or maybe he created it. But if nuclear power, not nuclear weapons, if nuclear power were invented today, it would be hailed as a civilization saving technology. And um, the, the political consensus would be that it should be uh, implemented uh, post haste. Um, we rewrote a piece called Malthusian Malarkey, where we described the uh, ugly underbelly of the uh, environmental movement and their Malthusian origins. Uh, at its core, they're anti-human. Um, they, they deeply believe that population control uh, is the only acceptable answer to um, abating the damage that us greedy humans um, uh, are impacting upon the earth. And so uh, from the outset, um, nuclear energy was targeted by radical environmentalists because, precisely because, it is a source of cheap, clean, abundant energy. Um, that is unacceptable to them because, as we have tried to coin the phrase, energy is life, um, they want less lives on the planet. And so they've attacked nuclear power with extreme vitriol precisely because it is the answer to all of our problems. All of the barriers to an energy utopia are, are totally political. There are no technical barriers. There aren't really all that many financial barriers if you get the politics of it right. Um, the energy payback period on nuclear power is six weeks. Um, we could, um, within five years, radically reduce our carbon emissions while simultaneously ensuring a maximum human flourishment for the most amount of people. Um, unfortunately, um, and, and we stand by this belief, there are many at the core of the environmental movement um, who don't feel the same way, especially the human flourishing part. And then they use really effective propaganda tricks to convince most people that the things they're advocating for uh, are evil, but they, let, they, they always leave out the fact that people are going to starve and die if these policies are implemented. And so um, we like to say, for example, if you think nuclear waste um, is a real issue, you are either a victim of propaganda or a knowing uh, creator of it. And, and so, because it's just not a problem, it's just provably not a problem. It, there, are, there is no energy source Wait, without some actually, trade-off. Yeah, no, well, I was just saying that I, I worked a little while for the uh, Center of Euro European Nuclear Research, and um, there was a group of researchers when I was there, which was about, uh, about 10 years ago or more, and um, they were actually actively working on a very successful project in reusing nuclear waste because yeah. you know uh, you know what happens right is like the uranium breaks down as you get the energy out of it and then there's some stuff left over and they've realized okay well actually we can use the stuff that's left over and and burn through a whole another cycle and and you know um i'm curious like do you think that like it's it doesn't have anything to do with the like irrational fear of like uh, the population for things like oh what if um you know these countries got a hold or you know or, or, or not just countries proliferation like parties got a hold of nuclear materials yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I, I don't think in the Western world at the pre-existing nuclear powers that this is, that this is, this is a real issue. Like there's no reason that Canada, no, Canada has done this much more successfully than we have, but there's no reason that the U S at least parts of Canada have, there's no reason that the U S shouldn't be building as many nuclear reactors as China is today. China is a nuclear power. They're building 
or planning to build up to 150 nuclear reactors in the coming decades. Um, Japan and France, like, you know, there's no, there's no free lunch in life. You know, there's no risk-free way to go about things. You can only make um, the best bet you can with the limited information you have before you. And um, given all the other trade-offs, look, how many people have died drilling for oil or natural gas explosions or train derailments? Um, you know, uh, we're using slave labor in China and cheap, dirty coal to make solar panels. Uh, there, are, there is no sort of um, free lunch. You have to make informed trade-offs. And when you just consider the overwhelming power of of the energy density that comes along with nuclear energy. It's just, it's just undeniable. Um, and as you know, the waste yeah. issue, like nuclear waste is actually just um, relatively easily processed uh, future fuel. <laughs> this, this is, this is not an issue. You could fit it in a hockey arena. Like this is, um, it can be safely stored for thousands of years. Uh, eventually we'll develop the technology where we have a, a sufficient confidence in our ability to shoot stuff into space that will just fire it all off into the sun anyway. Like it, this is, this is. So I want to ask, I mean, you, you have thought a lot about marketing and persuasion and it's evident, you know, in the, in the sort of launch of Doomberg and, and your growth and everything that, that you're good at this. So what, what, what's your advice for like marketing nuclear power better? Or what's the, uh, what is sort of like the public arguments that are needed to kind of close this gap? Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, you know, if we were hired by, you know, the American Nuclear Association or whatever they would call themselves, um, I think there needs to be a um, strong and proactive um, getting off of the back foot and leaning in. Um, nobody ever wins by defending. If you're defending, you're losing. Um, and um, I, when was the last time you saw a commercial talking about how many... Um, tons of carbon have been abated by the miraculous efforts of the province of Ontario to decarbonize its grid. Um, you never see it because they just quietly go about doing the serious business of producing their critical power um, that, that countries need. And um, they've been scared into a shell because of Fukushima and, um, and Chernobyl. Um, whereas you don't see the oil industry share, scared into a shell because of you know, the, the, the BP spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Life went on. It was a disaster. Um, it hurt the environment. Um, but if you go to the Gulf of Mexico today, there's no sort of um, uh, lasting negative impacts that you can visually see. And people have moved on. The oil industry is still as powerful in its in its lobbying. And, and to be frank, the oil industry has done some dirty tricks to the nuclear power industry. Like uh, they view them as a competitor and they treat them as such. So it's not like you know um, fossil fuel industry has uh, nothing to account for in this great scandal of vilifying nuclear power. Um, but yeah, they, they are either quiet or on their back foot and that's a losing strategy. Okay. And then can we get into some of the sort of next generation nuclear powers, the small modular reactors? I know you've, you've written about new scale. Um, do you have a view on like, what are the designs that are likely to be more favorable? I've seen these ones that have the like baseball size, uh, fuel pellets that look pretty cool. What's, uh, what do you got for us on that? Uh, so when we wrote about new scale, um, it was a bit nuanced, actually, um, because the, the, the main benefits of, of new scale, their sort of competitive advantages are their ability to market themselves, which, as we just described, is, is a good thing um, and should be applauded. And secondarily, their ability to, um, to navigate the complex labyrinth of the U.S. regulatory framework, which is unfortunate that um, the ability to do that is, is a competitive advantage. And so... Uh, one uh, nuclear power industry uh, expert that we consulted with off the record um, told us that, you know, in a world where um, the U.S. gets serious about building nuclear power plants again, um, there's nothing too special about new scale. But at the same time, uh, it's great that new scale is, is, is pushing the ball down the, down the field a little bit here uh, on this topic. So to your question about, you know, which particular design is the best one, uh, we're, we're, we're insufficient subject matter experts to, um, to pontificate on that particular question. Um, but we don't doubt that the latest designs will be far safer, far more efficient, um, and far easier to implement. Uh, but it doesn't really be matter because the key competitive advantage is the navigation of bureaucracy. That's interesting. Yeah. So here's where I plug shame. my uh, disclosure. I'm a, a holder of BWX Technologies, and they make... Uh, reactors for the sub US Navy subs and aircraft carriers and everything. And they've just gotten some 
contracts sure. or some kind of deals to do SMRs for military applications. So that's kind of my bet as like the dark horse, like, you know, tails, they keep building reactors for the Navy heads. They develop this SMR business on top of it. And they're already kind of plugged into the, the labyrinth also. Yeah. And, and we, we opened our piece on new scale by profiling the incredible safety record of the U S Navy in this regard. Um, and the fact that, you know, uh, small modular reactors, quote unquote, obviously designed for propulsion, but um, optimized for propulsion, I should say, um, have been around since, you know, shortly after the Second World War, like, um, and in the um, 80 odd years or 70 odd years that the, this has been going, um, the technologies continue to improve. And so obviously we, we don't give investment advice, but um, um, the company you reference, if, if they have channel uh, directly into the U.S. Department of Defense, then um, that seems to be a very solid um, differentiator as well. Awesome. Well, I had a couple of other questions on uh, gas and stuff, but I think we've probably covered that and we're about at time. So um, unless there's any crypto stuff you thought we missed, maybe we, we wrap it up here. I think this has been really fun. I don't know what spicy dish Boomer consumed before uh, hitting record um, on, on this part, but sorry, Boomer, Cletus but it was good. It looks like uh, you converted him to a paying sub. I actually, do you have, just before we go, like we should um, honor the people who care because uh, I don't really care, but do you have an opinion about the Ethereum merge at all? I, I really don't, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, I, I still, think it's going to uh, end up being a, a non-event that a lot of people complained really loudly about on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the only thing that I, I, I just say, you know, there's a lot of people that are like, well, Ethereum is some form, form of like a state attack on Bitcoin, you know, because um, proof of stake would allow, you know, literal stakeholders to gain governance control over the Ethereum network. Um, but in my opinion, you know, if that happens, like sucks for all the Ethereum holders, uh, that's not going to change anything to do with Bitcoin. Yeah, uh, the closest analogy I could come up with and it probably is not a good one is the frenzy around the y2k bug you know <laughs> this great moment in time where the world is in this case the crypto world is going to have some massive change but um again i, I can't say that it's um something we spent a whole lot of time studying or frankly care i about think if we're about. in a bull market it would be a, a an accelerant but if it's since we're in this uh crypto winter it's like there's a lot of downside if something goes wrong but i'm not sure there's going to be a lot of upside if it goes smoothly yeah well, I hope so for those who are leveraged for that uh, for that trade. Yeah, if 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 anyone's leveraged that trade, I have no idea about <laughs> that trade, honestly, because I, you know, so many people are thinking the merge is going to cause issues. So many people don't like proof of stake. So many people love proof of stake. So, yeah, I have no idea, honestly. I, I think crypto, you know, kind of why we're glad to have you on. And um, uh, you know, one of the things I'll just say this before you go is like, you know, we want we want our listeners that are heavily invested in crypto to be looking at what's going on in energy markets and looking what's going on in Europe and looking what's going on in equities and things like that. Because at the end of the day, it does, it, it, you know, it does have an impact on the price of Bitcoin, whether you like it or not. And, um, it, it, you know, um, uh, obviously, Bitcoin has its own driving factors. Yeah. It's all one big liquidity vortex that everything goes up at once and down at once. That's my current theme. Anyway, Doomberg, thank you so much. This has been awesome. Um, we'll get this edited and out either today or tomorrow. Um, and hopefully, uh, hopefully we can check in after right. the after the winter and see what's uh, which of which of these scenarios played out. Yeah, and you can you can I'll make make fun of me for being alarmist. That would be great. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, and uh, talk to you soon. Yeah, or or, or we thanks, can all guys. or we can all be in the same trench together. <laughs>